0: let's grab our Bibles. We're in Revelation chapter 17 this morning. Revelation chapter 17. We are, in fact, going to finish up this chapter. Let's stand up together for the reading of God's holy word. We're going to be in chapter 17 verses 14 through 18 this morning as our text. When you find that, let's stand as God's word, we believe, is infallible. It is inerrant. It is the inspired word of the true and the living God. Again, Revelation 17 verse 14 says, they will make war "...on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitutes, and they will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire." For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Amen. may be seated. I don't particularly know what women talk about when, when women get together, but men, I can tell you, have the most profound and sublime philosophical conversations men do. In fact, David and Christian and I, we were eating lunch in the pavilion a couple of weeks ago and we began to have a very serious conversation about what is the most fierce animal, whether a gorilla could beat a lion or whether a lion could beat a bear in a fight, and we got Quite deep into this particular conversation, Socrates and and Plato never never knew how good they had it. They never quite got as deep as we got that day. And interestingly, my son, just last night, I'm not kidding, he asked me a very similar question. He said, Dad, what what do you think is the the greatest animal that you could beat in a fight if you had to protect our our home? Now, These are important questions, and I don't know if women ever consider them, but men, we talk about these things all the time in in our scenarios. The lion versus the gorilla, let's say. But nobody has ever discussed, that I'm aware, what would happen if a dragon were to fight a lamb. And that is because a dragon is, of course they don't exist, but they are fighting machines. They are, they are built with thick scales and they have impenetrable claws and teeth and fiery breath. Nobody has ever asked the question about whether or not a dragon could beat a lamb in a fight, and that's because the answer is supposed to be obvious. Uh, it would be a rhetorical question. You'd only be asking just, just for the sake of asking the question. But here in the book of Revelation, if you've noticed, this is a theme that's actually rising to the surface of the book as we go. It's been posed before in various ways, but now in this chapter, that theme of the beast or the dragon versus the lamb. Seems to take center stage this very question. In fact, look with me at verse 14. Now, I would tell you that if I was to summarize the whole book of Revelation, you could practically do that with one verse here. Isn't, isn't verse 14 a summary of everything that the book of Revelation teaches? Read this here listen, they will make war on the lamb. Well, who's they? We'll go back to the previous verses. It's, it's the, the powers of the beast and the horns of this this wicked uh, this wicked maniacal fiend here they will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is lord of lords and king of kings and those with him are called and chosen and faithful if you asked me pastor Matt what have we been doing for these 72 weeks in total that we're preaching in revelation i could just quote you back revelation 17:14 and say this is the point of the whole of the book of Revelation, because what's being described here is the inevitable conflict between the two kingdoms or between the two powers that be. There is, on one hand, the kingdom of the dragon or the beast, and this kingdom comes into the inevitable conflict with the kingdom of the Lamb, who is Christ. That's the whole point of the book. And we could say it different in various ways. We could talk about it being a struggle between dark on one hand and lights on the other, we could talk about it being the kingdom of Satan on one hand versus the kingdom of Christ on the other. We could talk about it being a battle between hate on one hand or love on the other. We could posit the question in various ways, and yet it, it, it all seems to come down to the same point that there are two kingdoms here in this world that are in inevitable inexorable warfare with one another, and the question is what is going to happen between those two kingdoms as that battle plays out in real time in redemption history. That's the point of the book of Revelation. And as you know, and as verse 14 tells us very clearly, that victory is going to belong to the Lamb. However improbable that may seem that a lamb can conquer a dragon, yet that's exactly what the Bible teaches here in this verse. Now, let me just do a little bit of review for the sake of those who have maybe been on vacation over Labor Day, things like that. So what we're looking at here in chapter 17 is essentially the combination of wicked powers between the prostitute on one hand and this beast on the other hand. So what do these things symbolize? Well, over the weeks that we've been studying this chapter, I've sort of described to you that the prostitute or the harlot, as it's variously called in other translations, stands something like for false religion in general because the idea of a prostitute or a harlot is a prophetic trope that goes back to the prophecies of the Old Testament, especially when Israel and Judah, they would betray the true faith and they would begin to amalgamate or to import into their practices the beliefs, and the false practices of the pagan nations around them. So when they did that, Israel and Judah, the prophets would accuse them of so much spiritual harlotry or prostitution. Okay? That's what we have pictured here with the prostitute who is called Babylon. And also, simultaneously, you have here this picture of the beast, which drawing from Daniel 7 is a depiction of pagan uh, evil, diabolical, authoritarian, despotic, governmental powers. And so what this chapter seems to describe is what happens when false religion combines with that kind of tyrannical authoritarianism of the pagan nations. And it, be, it really turns out to be something quite diabolical and maniacal in combination. False religion and governmental tyranny that's what we're seeing here okay so but but in today's passage i don't know if you noticed this but there is quite the twist of fate here did you see that something rather unexpected i would say happens between the beast and the harlot namely and rather surprisingly that at some point the beast actually turns on the prostitute did you notice that did you see that coming i would not have seen that coming myself but there is this sudden and surprising turn here, especially in verse uh, eight, uh, 16, where the beast will then hate the prostitute and will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. So what in the world is happening here, even as the beast seems to turn on the harlot? Well, that's part of what we need to study this morning as we work through this passage. So the thesis of my message here is really simple. We're looking at then the conflict, the the inevitable conflict between these two kingdoms, the kingdom of the beast or the dragon, versus the kingdom of the lamb or the kingdom of Christ. And so we're going to make several observations as we go through this passage, verse by verse here this morning. So let's start off with this. Let's begin here and notice that this war is inevitable between the dragon and the lamb. There is an inevitable conflict that must take place, and is taking place even now between the dragon and the lamb. Look again at verse 14, perhaps our key verse, maybe even for this whole book. It seems to me that verse 14 opens up the whole book of Revelation to us, doesn't it? They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Now there's a lot of gold to mine here in verse 14. But let's just start out with the obvious. It says, They, who's they? Well, they goes back to the previous verses the horns and the kings and the beast, right? They will war against the lamb, they will make war on the lamb. Notice who is instigating here. Who is the aggressor in verse 14? Who is the one who is pressing into the conflict? Who is the one who is stirred up towards the madness of war? It's the evil ones that are actually aggressively instigating war against the kingdom of the Lamb. Do you see that? It's right there in the text. And that is true because we, as Bible believing Christians, we are not, listen to me carefully. We are not necessarily warriors. That's not really what we were called to be in that sense. We don't, for instance, put crosses on our rifles and go out and try to take the pagan lands by way of force. Christianity has never attempted to do those sorts of things. And actually, well, I shouldn't say never. I don't want to sanitize church history. Those times, uh, like the Crusades, for instance, when Christianity has taken up the sword and put crosses on our swords and crosses on our helmets and our shields and our, and our armor. Those have actually turned out to be the most embarrassing epochs of history. Uh, that's when we've missed the points of what this conflict even be, uh, describes here to us. Christians are not meant to be some sort of holy crusading warriors as though we take up the literal cause of militant warfare. That's not what we do. Uh, we are And we have been primarily for those 2,000 years, and again, I say primarily, not the sanitized church history. We are people of the Prince of Peace, yes? What do we do? Uh, Well, we plant churches and we evangelize the nations and we build strong families and we plant farms and we found institutions of higher learning like universities and colleges. We build Hospitals. We do scholarship. We pay our taxes, and that we do on time, and obediently. We are not supposed to be warlike Christian people, are we? No, no. It's it's the it's the enemies' armies, the armies of the dragon, that are the instigators here, right? And so it's it's largely true, though not exclusively, that for two thousand years. And so it should be. Christians are supposed to be peaceful and peaceable people. But I will tell you this: if you've noticed. Um, if you have your antenna up and your sensors going off lately that there seems to be increasing hostility against the Christian faith, it's only because it's true. And uh, he, listen, there is a general rule that has proved true throughout Christian history that the more devout and serious the Christianity, the more arduous is the persecution that comes to it. Okay, And that is because No one would ever even desire to persecute a lukewarm church. There'd be no reason for that. And so so throughout church history, whenever Christianity is at its most devout and its most serious, its most most faithful and pious, that's when it seems to incur upon itself most this kind of aggressive hostility from the warlike attributes of the beast and its kingdom. Now notice here too, let's go a little bit further into this. Let me just... Let me just comment further on the same verse. They will make war on the Lamb. Did you notice that? Who are they making war upon? Upon the Lamb. This is actually about Christ, isn't it? Not necessarily even us. Uh, He is the one who is in the crosshairs of the evil one. And Jesus told us, didn't he? Multiple times he told us that that would actually be the case. Let me just quote to you here, just by way of example, Matthew 10.22. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, why why would we be the hated ones? Well, only because of for the sake of the name of Christ. And he tells us that multiple times in the Gospels. Matthew 10.22, Matthew 24.9, Luke 6.22, Luke 21.17, John 7.7, John 15.19. The text we're going to come back to in just a moment. They will make war on the Lamb. It's Him. It's Christ that they are furious with, and that fury tends to spill out on us, and it has throughout church history. That's why Christians have been a persecuted people for throughout the 2,000 years of our history, and even going back into the Old Testament. Yes, uh, we could talk about Perpetua. Uh, we could talk about polycarp. We could talk about persecution throughout the ages. We could talk about the persecution of the reformers. I wish, and I can't do this now, but I wish that we could all go through at least one church history class down at the seminary in Pittsburgh so that you could frame up your worldview a little bit better. I think that would be helpful to all of us. That we would see that there's not necessarily something unique about our own generation as though we're the first generation to experience persecution, but rather globally and historically, that has always been the case. Why? Because we're united to Christ, you see. And it's him that causes the dragon to spill out his anger and fury. And unfortunately, with our media today, we don't often hear about the very current events, very current events that are taking place, not necessarily here in terms of physical violence, but around the world in terms of physical violence. I would challenge you to go home and uh, go on google.com and click on the news section then search the term church burnings or burning churches. I promise you that around the world, even recently this summer, there have been church burnings in various nations. Okay? There have been church burnings in Pakistan and Nigeria and in India and in Myanmar. This is happening all the time. And the fact of the matter is a lot of us are not even aware of it because our media doesn't care. It doesn't care at all. So you have to even go search for that kind of information to even find out what's happening around the world. But it's true, and it's true. And we here in America, we live in something like a historical anomaly in which we have not felt that kind of violent persecution that has been felt throughout the 2,000 years of church history. Now listen very carefully, though. Just because you haven't experienced physical violence, physical violence, does not mean that you aren't named in verse 14, okay? Because the dragon and the beast also has other means of waging warfare. We might call it nonviolent warfare, but it's warfare nevertheless. Let me define for you several ways in which nonviolent warfare is carried out. Number one, propaganda. I'll give you five. Number one, propaganda. The mass dissemination of false information at scale. That's what propaganda is, okay? The beast wages war that way. Number two, through censorship, the inhibition of the free flow of true information or other unapproved ideas. Okay, So propaganda, censorship. Three, brainwashing the malignant miseducation through captured institutions. Do you think that's happening today? Do you, Christian? you think that's happening today? Uh, number four, through shame, the stigmatizing of the noble and righteous life. Number five, through mockery, which is the social disenfranchisement, through reputational defamation, the minions of the beast know many different ways to wage war. It's not always physical violence, but sometimes it is. Okay. Naive, soft-bellied Christians who are culpably ignorant are not aware of these things. Wise, discerning Christians who have their ears to the ground are aware of these things. Do not be culpably ignorant in the matters of spiritual warfare. Does that make sense? Okay. So verse fourteen is unstoppably true. But but is all this concerning? Of course, it's concerning. Of course, it's concerning. Um, it seems to me like this, and I could be wrong. But here in America, God has had his protective hand over us like a stronghold in a refuge. But, but that is a, a historically anomalous bubble which seems to me to be popping almost in slow motion before my eyes. That's just the way I see it. I could be wrong. But uh, um, largely the freedom and the peace that we've had here to proclaim Christ in our churches uninhibited is a historical anomaly. And we should be thankful for that. And we should pray. We should seriously pray for our children and our grandchildren that God would continue to have his protective hand over us and over our nation. But look at this. Though it's concerning, yes. Look again at the verse and be encouraged by what verse 14 actually says in its completion. And the Lamb will conquer them. For he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Now one of the reasons that John continues to drive this beast versus the lamb imagery throughout the book of Revelation is because of the entire unlikelihood that a lamb would ever defeat a beast. <laughs> you see? You remember, here's a movie reference, I don't do this very often. You remember Jurassic Park? You've seen Jurassic Park? You remember the part where they lift the little cage off the poor little lamb and the Tyrannosaurus Rex comes and devours that little lamb? You remember that? You could run that simulation a hundred times and the lamb is never going to win that fight, unless the T Rex chokes on the lamb or something like that. It would never happen. And that is why the glorious unlikelihood of the lamb's victory over the beast is so heartening and so encouraging to us. Okay? How does he conquer? Well, the, the lamb conquers in two ways. First, through the cross, and secondly, at his return. We are going to have a lot more to say about that when we come to chapters 19 and 20, but we're going to put 19 and 20 at abeyance because they're coming shortly. We've got to get through chapter 18 first. We are going to come to the glorious and victorious return of Christ. By the way, that same line, the Lord of lords and King of kings, we're going to see that again when Christ returns in all of his glorious power. But for the moment, let me simply draw your attention. Uh, your attention, rather, To what this verse says about you and it says about me do you see it what does it say Uh, for he is the lord of lords and king of kings and those with him are called and chosen and faithful does that describe you i hope it does let's break that down you are called christian Uh, you are called you are called how in what way well first you are called to repent of your sins Moreover, you are called to follow after Christ as a disciple. You are called to a life of discipleship and learning and study of Christ. You are called, let me put it this way, you are called to Him personally. That's what Christianity is. It's a call upon your life to submit yourself to the Lord Christ, to study after Him, to follow Him, to adopt His ways as your ways, and to be drawn to Him as a person, you are called in such ways. But, but not only that, look at this, you are also chosen. So that's a little bit more specific, isn't it? Okay? Because there's one sense in which we can talk about, talk about the calling being very general, but choosing here, that is very individually particular. Let me take you to two texts in which your choosing has already taken place. Go with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 1. Your Bible, if you're a Presbyterian, should just flop over to Ephesians 1. Because here in Ephesians 1 are those glorious doctrines of grace that underscore the way that we have been chosen in a predestinarian sense before the foundation of the world to belong to Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, look at verse 3 again. Presbyterian Bibles just flop open here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What spiritual blessings do you have, Christian? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even, verse 4, as he chose us in him. When did he choose us? Answer, before the foundation of the world. Why? That we should be holy and blameless before him. Are you sure? Yes. Verse 5. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So there is a sense here. And which when we describe the having-been-chosen status of Christians, it is a predestinary sense, okay? And as I believe that with all of my heart. But there's another sense in which you are chosen, and I want you to see this as well. I do think this is relevant thematically. Flip with me also then to John's Gospel, chapter 15, and I want you to see how you're chosen in another sense. John, chapter 15. Now, this is drawn from the Upper Room Discourse, which comprises much of the Gospel of John, chapters 13 and following, almost all the way up to the cross. John has a long section on Christ's Upper Room Discourse with his disciples. A lot of it is about love. Um, His calling to love one another is in this section. Uh, The love of God the Father is in this section. But here's a section about hate. What does Christ have to say about hate? Well, look at John 15. Verse 18 and following. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Well, of course it would. The world loves itself. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but watch this, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Okay. Okay. So there's a sense in which you have been chosen in a predestinarian sense, but there's also a sense here in which you have been chosen by God to be distinguished from the world, the result being then that the world hates you because of it. You're chosen for spiritual warfare. You are chosen to stand fast in this cosmic battle between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. Okay? And what does the Lord require of you? What does he want from you? We'll go back to our main text because there's a third word that describes us right here. You are called, yes, called to a life of discipleship and repentance and faith, chosen in a predestinarian sense and chosen in a spiritual warfare sense. And what does he demand of you? That you would be faithful. Okay, Never does it say that you have to be victorious over the forces of Satan yourself as though you were fighting this battle on your own. The scripture never calls you to be successful in any sort of financial way. successful in your career or your vocation. The scriptures never call you to a certain level of intelligence that can be measured by degrees or anything else like that. Uh, But the one thing that the scripture does ask of you is that you would be faithful to him. That's what it asks. And this too is a theme in the book of Revelation, and we've seen this all the way back. Remember what uh, John says through Christ in Revelation 2.10 to the church of Smyrna? Listen, I'll quote it for you if you don't remember. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. But be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. That's what he demands of you is faithfulness. Nothing else. It's no more or less complicated than faithfulness to Christ. That's what he wants. You've already been called and chosen. Now it's time to be faithful. Okay? Okay? So we see here in this text the inevitable war between the dragon and the lamb. Now, let's transition because I want to show you here something else. This is what's so surprising in this particular, this particular text. This is really interesting here. Notice, secondly then, the inherent instability of the dragon's own kingdom. I would not have seen this coming, but here it is. The inherent instability of the dragon's own kingdom. Look at verse 16. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. Now this is very interesting and somewhat of a surprising turn in the book of Revelation because here we see something like the disintegration of the beast's kingdom. How so? Well, the beast apparently turns against the prostitute. That diabolical duo has sort of a breakdown here. The beast throws off the prostitutes. Why? Well, what's what's the nature of prostitution? It's always been transactional anyways. Right? It's not like she was truly loved. No prostitute is. It's not like she's been truly faithful in that sense. All along, the prostitute has been using the beast for his power, and the beast has been using the prostitute for her allure and her attraction. But at some point, that transactional relationship ends. And so what does the beast do? He throws her off, kills her in very violent language, burns her and devours her. There's probably no better historical example of this, though, than Jerusalem and Rome in the first century. Uh, Jerusalem and the, uh, the crucifixion of Christ essentially comes into something of like a pact with the Roman magistrate and Pontius Pilate, and you see this, the stories in the Gospels, even as the Sanhedrin is handing over their own Messiah to Pontius Pilate, right? There's the union of harlot and beast right there. At least one historical example, though there may be many. And what happens, though? Well, the beast turns on the prostitute, and in 70 AD, the Romans come back and destroy Jerusalem and tear down the temple. So there's an example for you. And by the way, just by way of some application here, that's what happens to religious compromisers. Is they're never truly loved by the beast. They're only used. And this is why for the life of me, I don't understand those denominations that end up giving away their doctrine and their beliefs and their practices to take on the practices of the unbelieving world. It makes no sense. It's so foolish. And yet we've seen it in the end of the 20th century, in the beginning of the 21st century. We've seen practically every mainline denomination do this, haven't we? We've seen them jettison historic Orthodox Christian doctrine. They're throwing out the things that we've believed for 2,000 years. They're like the, they're like the pagan sold, uh, sailors in the book of Jonah, just throwing out all the cargo right into the sea. And what are they doing? They're willing to say practically anything to be loved by the beast right have we seen this yes of course we have uh, is 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 abortion we can't speak about that okay we won't speak about that they throw they throw a life sustaining position overboard oh we're oh we're doing the, the perversity thing now okay well well i guess we throw out some moral integrity right over the over the wall oh we got to wave this flag of this social cause or this ideology here we'll say this we'll do that And at the end of the day, what happens? The beast rejects the prostitute again and again. Because once the transaction is over, the prostitute is no longer useful to the beast. Do you see that? And that's why spiritual compromise makes no sense. Shame to any church or denomination that is willing to compromise their faith for the sake of the power of the state or the winsomeness of the unbelieving world or the attraction of the culture all around us, it does not end well for religious compromisers. How much better then to simply stand for the truth in an age of compromise? How much better to simply stand then for the word and to be inflexibly determined with the integrity of God's holy scriptures, to stand for what the Lord calls us to stand for? The prostitute is always thrown off by the beast, because it's only been trans- transactional the entire time. Religious compromise makes no sense. So we're going to stand fast for the cause of Christ here at Gospel Fellowship. That's the line we draw on the sand, all right? Now, third, um, I want you to notice here that there is a really strong, and we're going to have to end with this, theological motif that comes in in verse 17. Look at this. Look at the theology here that is built into this text in verse 17. It's, the, it's a doctrine of the sovereignty of God, isn't it? Look at 17. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. Okay? So the doctrinal word for that there is the sovereignty of God or his providential governorship over all that he has made. This is the idea that God stands out. He is above and uh, in control of everything that he's made. And even here, we see that sovereignty playing out in three different ways. Look back at the text, look at 17, and tell me, do you see the three ways that God is sovereign over this entire enterprise? Well, what are they? A, he is sovereign over their hearts. See that? For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose. B, he is sovereign over that very purpose that they're carrying out. Okay? by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast. And then C, he's also sovereign, look at this, over the timing of all of this until the words of God are fulfilled. So as it turns out, God is absolutely sovereign over this entire battle from start to finish, over all of redemption history. Now let's, let's talk about each one of these just a little bit here and then we'll finish up. First of all, he is sovereign over their hearts. Rebels don't believe that okay rebels think that their hearts and their minds are free from the control of god but as it turns out there is no such freedom of rebellion god is lord of the heart and of the mind even down to the ideas that fire back and forth between the synapses of their wicked brains okay the proverbs say that god steers kings as he steers the waters um, the book of Exodus tells us that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. God is sovereign even over their hearts and their minds. Okay? Let me take you to a text. I know we're running out of time here. Um, let me show you what it says, almost the same thing in 2 Thessalonians, which we just preached through 2 Thessalonians a couple of months ago now. I guess it's been some time, maybe several months. But in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it describes this great eschatological rebellion in which Christ comes back and he destroys the man of lawlessness. I'm in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let's pick it up in verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. What happens then? Look at verse 11. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Revelation is now saying the same thing in agreement with the Apostle Paul. God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast. Okay, Why does he do that? Well, B, because they are carrying out his very purpose in redemption history. Sometimes we look at the world all around us and we think, my goodness, who is in control? Is anyone in control? Okay? But the reality is that God himself is steering like a rudder the ship of history, and it is going exactly in the course that he has designed it despite the fact that we often don't see the turns and twists of history coming, yet we can trust that God is actually in control of all things. And then look at this. He also controls the timing as everything must fulfill his words. Again, handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. Mark that word until. It is a time-marking word. Okay, It is a change of status term here. The beast will have power only up until the words of God are fulfilled. In other words, uh, this entire cosmic battle between darkness and light, between good versus evil, between hatred and love, it will all fall out exactly into place until and including the very timing that the Lord has ordained for all of these things. And the question to you this morning is simply this. Do you trust him? Do you trust him? I hope you can say yes.